0: Hi, this is SD, host of the Friday, a public affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye.
1: Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level No power frequency, radio modulation The big sound from underground, another pirate station No, no, change, change, without without struggle. Struggle. no, no change without struggle, struggle. No, one no one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power
0: WORT 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinur. In about 20 minutes, we will be talking to two Palestinians who live here in Wisconsin and hear about um, their thoughts and um, information and families and so on and so forth. But first, Many countries have made statements supporting South Africa's case of genocide against Israel at the International Court of Justice, and more and more countries are withdrawing their support from Israel. Meanwhile, Germany announced it would file a declaration of intervention on behalf of Israel, which has led to a major furor with Namibia attacking Germany. And we are asking why? To find out, I have um, on, the, uh, on the air with me Herbert Jauch. He is the chairperson of the Economic and Social Justice Trust in Namibia and co-editor of the book Towards Democratic Development States in Southern Africa. Thank you very much, uh, Herbert, for joining us. Um, I'm interested in this for two reasons. Um, one, of course, is the situation currently um, in Palestine and Israel. But I also, as it happens, very recently read the book Afterlives by Raza Guna and um, learned a lot about German colonialism and war making in Africa, which surprised me because I know plenty about the British and French and Belgians and... Um, and even Dutch, but uh, I I had this just the slightest notion of uh, Germany in Africa. So if if you can give us the big picture of the role of Germany in Africa and its um, colonialist rule,
2: yes, yeah, no. The the role that Germany played in Africa is, is often underreported and has received fairly little attention. But the brutality with which the Germans ruled um, falls perfectly in line with other colonial powers. And in the specific case of Namibia, there was, in fact, something that historians later called the Kaiser's Holocaust, basically that under the imperial rule, before the long before the Nazis, Germany had already a Holocaust, and they gave an extermination order. It was just not in Europe, it was in Africa. And it seems that that distinction in terms of the victims uh, made all the difference in terms of reporting, in terms of prominence received. Now, um, Namibia became a German colony in uh, 1884. And 20 years later, uh, the Namibians, indigenous Namibians, realized what that means, how they lost their land, how German settlers spread out, how um, indigenous namibians became just cheap laborers for the the colonial economy and particularly the loss of land uh, affected namibians very severely and so in the southern and central parts of namibia uh, they resisted and and they took up the few arms that they could uh, lay their hands on to resist german occupation and German land theft. And then in 1904, uh, General Van Trotta gave the order of extermination. He said, uh, every Herero, the Ova Herero is one of the indigenous groups in Namibia. And General Van Trotta said, every Herero shall be killed, women and children will not be spared. And about 70% of the Ova Herero people in Namibia were murdered during that time, uh, 1904 to 1908. Another um, group that lived in southern Namibia, the Nama people, similarly, were with about half of them were killed either immediately by the German occupying forces or in concentration camps because the survivors of the first onslaught were put in concentration camps and had to basically work themselves to death under horrific conditions, b- building railway lines, building harbors at, at the Atlantic Ocean and the Namibian coast, etc. So this was the, the German colonial picture. And what angered so many Namibians is that this genocide in Namibia took over a hundred years to be even formally acknowledged by Germany. And even today, uh, Germany insisted on a formulation to say, by today's understanding, what happened that time in Namibia would be considered genocide. Now, that is an insult to Namibians, because you cannot say at the time they didn't know what they were doing. The order was very clear, and it's by all definitions genocide. So this is what what angered Namibians for all that time, that it took more than 100 years to get an apology. It was half-hearted, and it was not accompanied by serious negotiations about compensation for the descendants of the victims.
0: So, where is? Go yes. ahead. No, no. Continue.
2: So this this was felt was also a bit of a double standard, because the Holocaust in in Germany and Europe happened also before there was a UN convention on genocide. Now, the, the Namibian genocide also happened before, and it was almost like in the Namibian case, the German government uh, dragged its feet saying, well, by the standards of the time, there there was no concept like genocide, but clearly what they did, it was. And now with the uh, genocide in Gaza, that irked then the Namibian government even further, that now Germany, after these two terrible... Um, bloody epochs in their own history and uh, the kind of dilly-dallying around apologizing and reparations. They were so quick to stand with Israel and justify the killings in Gaza. And, and I think that angered a lot of, um, not only politicians, but generally amongst the Namibian population. There was a lot of anger towards these double standards of Germany and basically not learning from history, that um, genocide needs to be stopped immediately and and this murderous event need to come to a halt. No matter who, you cannot say, well, if it happens in Europe, we respond like this. If it happens in in Africa, we respond differently. These double standards, um, I think, is what what triggered a harsh response from our late president, but also from Namibians generally towards uh, the German position.
0: Yeah. So, you know, a a thought that occurred to me, which is very simplistic, I admit, um, was that uh, Germany, as a country that has um, engaged in at least two genocides that I know about now, um, simply supports genocide because Israel, um, of course, you know the jews were the victims of the nazis but now that's what israel is doing so kind of it seems to me like a um unity of genociders i mean you know maybe yeah. it's a ridiculous thought but what what do you think
2: exactly there is that is the one way you you put it like uh, hitting the nail on the head But what Germany has managed in all three cases is is being on the wrong side of history and being with the perpetrators. And I got on social media the other day a, a very impressive statement from some rabbis based in the U.S., who said when we said never again, it didn't mean never again for Jews specifically. It meant never again any genocide for anybody. And I think that is the lesson of history. And, and that, that short statement was, I think, just one or two pages, if I recall. We circulated it very widely in Namibia in amongst the activist groups because it really went to the core of it. And, and like you said, Germany has not understood that lesson at all. They are driven by guilt of what they did during the Holocaust years. But now, Palestinians' blood... Absolutely innocent Palestinians, thousands of children pay the price also for Germany's guilty conscience because of what they did in the Holocaust. And like you said, and history taught us that terrible lesson sometimes, that the victims of yesterday can be the perpetrators of tomorrow or today. We see it even with abuse in in families that often children who were abused themselves become abusers as adults. And I think th- this is a, a terrible parallel, what we see with Israel, um, after the Holocaust, uh, being the victims of unspeakable um, crimes against humanity by the Germans. But now, when they meet out genocidal action and brut- uh, absolute uncontrolled brutality against Palestinians, um, that Germany or the US government, or most of Western Europe is basically standing aside. And that is where the South African position was so refreshingly different. And South Africans speak about their own experience, their own oppression during apartheid rule, and say, that is why we understand what Palestinians go through. And it's it's similar with, with Namibians, because we also went through that history of this possession. But you rightly say, the Germans managed to to stand on the wrong side of history in all these genocidal uh, conflicts and wars and that is a tragedy when you when you um just basically refuse to learn that lesson from history and and you haven't managed what the rabbis pointed out in their letter namely to say we will make sure that genocide cannot happen anywhere in the world against anybody that needs that is the, the lesson for humanity.
0: Yeah. So um, another thing I learned from um, Afterlives, the the book that I read, um, which, by the way, I recommend to our um, listeners, it, it's in our uh, public library as one of um, the section of Too Good, to Miss or something like that it's called. Um, one other thing that I learned from it is that... Um, the Germans, as well as the British, um, used Africans as their, and, and in the case of the British, also Indians uh, from India, used them as soldiers so that they themselves didn't have to fight. They were just the um, overlords and uh, the people who fought and died were black people who were taught to um to really brutally kill other uh, African people. What, what can you tell us about that?
2: Yes, it, it was very common. It went as far as uh, South Africans being deployed in the war, in the Second World War, on the side of the British. They were then promised um, that they would receive some lucrative compensation. The reality for many of those, these black South Africans were They faced open discrimination in the war that they fought alongside the British. When they returned home, they got a bicycle. Often that was like the token of appreciation for putting your life on the line. And four four years later, they got legalized apartheid legislation that made them second and third class citizens in their own country. Um, The the crudest form of of racist discrimination in the form of apartheid legislation that discriminated against black South Africans in all sphere of life. Now, in the German case, and and Namibia in particular, that didn't happen because Germany lost its colony after the First World War already. But there's no doubt that the Germans would have tried a similar um, strategy in doing it. And that has nothing to do with recruiting people. It's blatantly forcing them, like they forced indigenous Namibians, the Ovaherero and Nama people, to build these railway lines, roads, um, to work under these horrific conditions, building harbors and jetties, uh, and working themselves to death, Um, just uh, based on the assumption, if you don't do that, we're going to kill you anyway. And the horrors that women had to go through was also well documented. And um, this is something that Germany has never fully grasped, that what they did here was a genocide just like the Holocaust and that they need to sit with the affected groups. So Germany tried to circumvent that by saying, well, we have government negotiations and we agree on some amount that we give Namibia in the next... Uh, 10, 20 years, and that will then serve as kind of compensation. Now, that's not the way to do it. You have to to be honest about what you did, and you must sit with the descendant of the victims and with the affected communities and and agree with them directly. Like in Palestine, there can never be peace without the Palestinians being part of a peace deal of an agreement. It can't be. And it's the same with the genocide negotiations in Namibia. Without the descendants of the victims, you cannot make a deal. And that's the last thing Germany wants. They tried to bypass that by just talking to to the Namibian government. And it has backfired badly in the past because the agreement reached between the governments was uh, completely rejected by the affected groups here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, why were they even in Africa and specifically in Namibia? What are the uh, natural resources that um, they were exploiting? And what is the ongoing legacy of, um, of what happened by way of economy and uh, the social structure and, and so on?
2: Yes. If you visit Namibia you, you could see the results of that history immediately. Number one is that mining has still remained the chief exporters 35 years after independence. Mining corporations historically were ma- many were South African based white-owned corporations. Uh, But it's truly kind of global capital that is involved there. So uranium is one of the resources that came from Namibia. During colonial rule, the British owned Rio Tinto Zinc Company. Today, the mining companies are owned by the Chinese. And there's now a Russian company entering the field, also trying to um, mine uranium. The second item that's very prominent are diamonds, Continues the, the South African-based Anglo-American corporation involved in that. Then there's some gold, where Canadian uh, companies are involved. And now with the oil discovery, we have a Canadian company trying to dig up the Okavango Delta, one of the most pristine wildlife areas in the world for oil. And then you have Shell and Total Energies and um, being involved in offshore oil exploration reporting that they finding now. So in terms of structures, nothing has changed from the colonial economy. It's the large transnational corporations that still control that. Now you asked about the the social legacies and, and they are equally striking. You go to any larger town in Namibia and you will see there's the kind of very orderly town center and the very kind of wealthy and well looked after former white areas of town. And alongside, basically on the other side of the railway line, you have what we call the townships, where historically black Namibians could only live there. They were not allowed inside towns, they were not allowed in the white areas. And so um, you find that these black townships still exist similarly, that that's where poverty is concentrated. That's where you have what we call the informal housing, people living in shacks. And the social reality really hits you there. But the, the kind of middle class and wealthy areas are fairly well insulated from that. And that's a direct result of these social structures that concentrated the wealth in the hands of the few and excluded the vast majority And that is still very visible as a a consequence of that kind of settler colonialism in Namibia.
0: Yeah. So um our next guests are already with us so let me just um make one more point uh your president Hage Geingob uh, who died um very recently but just before he died he reiterated his call made on 31 December 23 and I quote here no peace loving human being can ignore the carnage waged against Palestinians in Gaza um, did the Germans respond to that in any way?
2: Uh, not that we know of. They they kept a bit quiet. They were hoping that over time, like, the, the waves would die down. But with this statement, our late president has really spoken for almost all of us in the yeah. that this is really how we feel. And he has expressed in that statement so clearly the call for humanity to take a stance and to put an end to that carnage. And based on what Namibians have gone through in their own painful long history, um, this is the call that that needs to be supported.
0: Yeah, Herbert Jauch, the chairperson of the Economic and Social Justice Trust in Namibia, co-author, co-editor of the book Towards Democratic Development States in Southern Africa. Thank you very much for joining us and for um, Offering this um, information that, at least for me, was very new. appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much, Esty, for the information and the invitation. Yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you. And uh, with us are, are two... A uh, Palestinian guest, Muhammad Hamad, f- uh, was born in Gaza to a family displaced twice, first in 1948, then 1967, to the area called today Gaza Strip. He was born later, but his parents and some of his siblings went through the Nakba. He came to the United States to complete his graduate studies in engineering, and he lives in Wisconsin with his family. Also with us is Janan Najib, proud Palestinian-American Muslim, The founder and current executive director of the Milwaukee Muslim Women's Coalition, she runs the Islamic Resource Center, publishes the Wisconsin Muslim Journal, directs the Milwaukee Muslim Film Festival and is founder and advisor for the Wisconsin Muslim Civic Alliance. On October 8, she convened the Wisconsin Coalition for Justice in Palestine, which now includes more than 60 organizations working toward a permanent ceasefire, the end to Israeli occupation in Palestine, and Palestinian liberations. Thank you, both of you, so much for uh, joining us today. Let's start with you, uh, Mohammed. Um, Your family in Gaza, how are they doing. Um, you have sustained some uh, losses, I know. Tell us about that, please. Uh, thank you
3: for having me and uh, having this program and giving me the chance to speak about you know, the situation in Gaza. Um, yes, uh, I was born in Gaza. I visited Gaza for the last 25 years twice. Uh, one uh, when my father passed away in, in 2012 and the second time in 2022, uh, which is uh, just to take care of uh, my mother, uh, which is she had uh, a health problem. Um, since, you know, October, uh, you know, uh, Gaza, uh, it has been in the news, uh, the bombardment in Gaza and uh, the losses of the civilian and casualty keep rising and um, i have a big family that live uh, in gaza in different area in gaza which is uh, i lost uh, over 20 right now uh, from uh, cousin extended family uh, sister and so on and uh, the situation in gaza is, if you talk about the north and the south uh, you know there is two uh it's a dire situation, north area of Gaza. Um, it's a starvation. I have been in touch with them, with those they stayed, you know, in north of Gaza, because they don't have the means to travel, you know, to the south. Physically, all uh, people, um, physically they have a uh, disability. They need uh, wheelchairs, and uh, you know the fear. Of uh, you know, also is not going to be a safe area, and the south, which is uh, they were correct. Um, there is no safe area in Gaza. Uh, I have been in touch with them on daily basis. Even though uh, most of the people who know North Gaza, they went through um, a very traumatized, you know, uh, condition uh, during uh, the last three months of and even, you know, their area where it used to be a shelter area and it should be a safe area uh, since uh, it was under the flag of Honorua. They This school, it has been, uh, you know, attacked. Uh, men, it has been um, stripped down from their clothes, interrogated, taken their property from uh, any money they have. Any cell phone, even, you know, um, my niece, she told me that they took her gold that she had. So the situation, as I said, you know, in North Gaza, it has a starvation. In the south of Gaza, uh, it's the fear of um, encouraging to the city of Rafah, which is, as you hear in the news, uh, most of the people, you know, uh, they are gathered in a small area. Uh, some estimate, you know, they say 1.5 million, um, which is uh, in a small area. That the fear, uh, if they start bombarding, uh, a lot of casualty will be, um, um, you know, will will happen. I, I have uh, nephews and nieces with their family around 11 of them in the south of Gaza, in the area of Rafah, and I have hundreds of people still in the north of Gaza living. The starvation, the picture I received from them and the videos—it's heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I'm so I'm so sorry for your many losses. It seems like every Palestinian we're talking with, who has family in Gaza, has lost—you know—huge numbers of people. Um, let me ask you, uh, Janan do you have family in Gaza?
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I don't personally have family in Gaza. I was born in Palestine, but not in Gaza. Mm -hmm. But I have a number of friends uh, in Gaza and um, some that were killed. Uh, One of them, uh, when my husband was doing his training, medical training, we lived uh, for a few years in West Virginia, and uh, we had... um, Uh, A family of uh, eight members, a very wonderful family. Uh, The the man, his name was Muhammad Shabir. We often called him Abu Malik, which is very traditional. The father of Malik and the mother was called uh, Um Malik. Um, And he was finishing his PhD. And um, you know, every week practically, uh, we were uh, together. He was a very um, family loving man, very brilliant man. His, his wife was, um, you know, um, she loved to cook, loved to tell jokes. And he had, um, uh, middle age, uh, middle school age children at the time. And the girls many times would come and stay with me. I was a young mother at the time and they would hang out with me. And, um, about two months into the um, um, the bombardment and uh, the genocide on Gaza, um, we heard he over the years he he had gone back and he then became the president of uh, one of the universities there. And as has been happening, there's an intentional effort to to really uh, kill all of the uh, leadership, all of the um, uh, uh, academics, all of the, um, you know, civil leadership, the artists, the journalists, so that there's no leadership for the Palestinians there. And so he was he was the president of the university, and now there's, there's not a single university standing in, in Gaza. Um, his house was directly um, uh, targeted, and him and his family were all in there. And um, the, the, it, the children that I once knew um, had become adults and had families. Um, they were all killed instantly. Um, uh, Muhammad and his wife uh, managed wherever they had been in the house. They somehow managed to run out, and um, snipers were outside and shot them, him and his wife, uh, dead. Um, and uh, and then uh, the snipers. Continued, You know, one group after group, they would come with their tanks and um, they prevented them for probably more than three weeks, uh, left their bodies um, outside, um, not allowing anyone to bury them. Um, anyone that would try to get close, they would be shot at uh, so that, you know, hungry animals were uh were uh feeding on them and and their bodies were disintegrating and um and this was uh, this was the uh barbaric end um by this barbaric uh, regime in israel to to someone that was a brilliant academic and his beautiful family
0: yeah and i'm i'm so Horrified and, and sorry to hear that. And I, I, I can add that some of the Palestinian, um, the Gazan guests that we've had on the show have been killed or their houses have been targeted. One of them was severely injured and um, And I I don't know what happened to him, but most of his family um, got killed. And and it's obviously correct that the Israelis are targeting... Um, every intellectual, poet, artist, and doctors, of course. And so speaking of doctors, uh, right now uh, the Nasser Hospital is under attack by Israel. Um, it's definitely not the first hospital um, that is um part of destroying the infrastructure is obviously destroying the healthcare system and uh, that way killing even more people. Mohammed, what what do you know about what's going on there in the Nasser hospital and um, what has happened in other hospitals? Uh,
3: yes. Uh, the, the clinic, actually, you know, this uh, round of war you know, against Gaza and you call it war, you call it uh, genocide, you call it uh, ethnic cleansing. It has uh, uh, left the health system uh, completely uh, destroyed. You know, if you look to uh, around 600, you know, healthcare workers, it has been uh, murdered and killed in, in this round of uh, war. And you have uh, around 230 between hospitals. And the clinic, small clinic, has been also destroyed. Uh, you know, look around; 176 uh, people, uh, first responder. You know they have been also killed uh, in this attack. Which is when you hear uh, the health uh, director saying, you know, we don't have even ambulances to uh, to move injured people. You know to hospitals. Uh, you know you feel how uh, desperate the situation. Just recently, a couple of weeks ago, my cousin, she is the director of youth training in the Red Crescent. And um, she tried, you know, uh, she was uh, in the headquarter of Khan Yunus. She tried to uh, save um, an injured person just outside of the headquarters with two of the first responders. And a sniper killed her and killed these two uh, first responders. Yeah. She she was doing her job, and she had been killed. Uh, the hospital issue that we know, um, you know, the same story we hear about the Shifa Hospital and the uh, Indonesia Hospital, Kamal Adwan Hospital, the same story that, uh, you know, the resistance, they are using this hospital, but there is no proof so far. And keep digging and, um, and you know, uh, and injured and sick. People keep dying in these hospitals after, you know, the lack of oxygen, lack of medical care, and, you know, also arresting these doctors and nurses. So when you arrest, you know, they take care of, take care, you know, of these injured people, you know, the outcome of um, uh, of that, most of the injured people will die, which is, that's what we hear, you know, in the news from early morning. Six people died, you know, in uh, in the hospital of lack of oxygen. So, uh, yes, uh, uh, the situation, you know, in Khan Yunus, uh, in the Nasser Hospital, uh, you know, the, the Israeli army right now inside the hospital, moving from uh, one floor to another floor, um, you know, <laughs> and the result, you know, people going to die in that hospital and they will not take you know the care of them. They cannot move. There is no... Uh, more clinic or hospital can take care of uh, the injured people.
0: Yeah,
3: Rafah, Rafah is still, um, uh, you know, uh, under bombardment. Rafah is still, you know, uh, an area cannot uh, cannot host all of these injured people in these couple of, um, uh, of hospital, um, which is, is not uh, is not, you know, just established to take care of uh, these kind of injury or key, uh, these kind, kind of, you know, with oxygen and so on. So I, I think that, that mm-hmm. the health care system in Gaza is just in dire situation. And adding to that, uh, it just uh, there is no fuel, there is no electricity. And, you know, the starvation also can cause also problems.
0: Yeah, I remember not that long ago that there was no fuel and no electricity and and so on. seemed like the worst thing that could happen. And, of course, things just keep getting worse and worse. And, um, Janan, we heard in the news that an area is being prepared in the Sinai Desert, apparently for Palestinians. Netanyahu, of course, has been talking about um, a land offensive and uh, moving the Palestinians to a safe place, which is uh, absurd, but um have you heard about that, and what are your thoughts about about this latest development?
1: Well, I don't think that it's a secret. um I think his uh, very uh, um um, extremist government have been very public about the idea that they want to uh, transfer whatever Palestinians are left living into the desert and and uh, wall them off and just uh, you know they they can suffer a, a slow death because Israel wants. Their goal is really to take from um, to, to take all of Palestine and to, to take all of Gaza, um, and uh, and our unfortunately our government um, has has been enabling that um this is not any secret um just very recently some of the top leaders in Israel with the settlers had an a, enormous uh, um convention where they said that we don't want any Palestinians to to remain alive there and and Netanyahu from the very beginning he said that we're going to turn all of Gaza into a parking lot, and we're going to and we're going to create uh, uh, settlements by the beach. And there's even talk that there there happens to be uh, natural uh, uh, gas reserves uh, under under Gaza, and this is part of the reason, and also to be able to uh, to to um, have uh, naval uh, uh, ships from that area. So there's been a lot of talk with disregard for the Palestinians that live there and many of these Palestinians themselves, as Mohammed just said, his family have been part of the Nakba and have been and have had to move multiple times. 70% of the people of, of Gaza are people from 1948 that were ethnically cleansed from from uh, um, uh, their Palestinian towns and villages to make room for the the European uh, uh, Jews that were brought there uh, to create to create a um, uh, a, a homeland for them, um, and so and so what we're seeing we're seeing a Holocaust that is unprecedented. Um, this is this is in the time in the short time frame the level of death and misery and destruction that has taken place is unprecedented, and it's the first time in history that we have. People in real time that are narrating and recording their demise and their ethnic cleansing as it's happening. And the fact that it's happening and the vast majority of the world is demanding that it stop. Yet we have we have the United States, which continues, uh, you know, uh, our government at at uh, you know continues to arm Israel because because the Israeli lobby happens to be uh, uh, really I always I always say that um, uh, besides uh, um, Palestine having Israeli occupation, Congress is Israeli occupied territory as well, uh, and so we have so many of these uh, elected officials um that that are bound because of the money that is being uh, uh given to them by by the Israeli lobby but it's unconscionable it's immoral it's it's shameful on us as Americans to allow this to continue to happen
0: yeah um i think jenna the way you put it that congress is an occupied territory too is um so succinct and so um Correct, and I know that AIPAC has announced that it will um, give at least a hundred million dollars during the upcoming election season to make sure that uh, people who are doing Israel's bidding um, will be elected. Muhammad, uh, talk about that, if you will. You know, <laughs> it's
3: no secret, you know that. Uh, The special interest group in this country, they they have the upper hand in our election and determine the outcome of that, whether you are in the Republican or in the Democratic Party. Uh, But I see, you know, uh, there is awakening in in our uh, society here in America. People, they realize that uh, what they want and what they want their government to do and what they are doing now it's contradicting with their with their moral, with their humanity. And I see there is awakening and keep increasing this awakening and the number, you know, becoming a clear and, and the right uh, side and I'm optimistic that even in you know, though uh, the special interest group they have uh, multi billion dollars you know behind this election I believe that people, you know, they will uh, they will select and elect, you know, the honest, uh, humane people that represent their interests um, and in the coming, you know, four years. And, and, you know, we are here, we have responsibility as Americans uh, to be a human, to be a human being, to feel, you know, about the human being outside of our border, to feel their pain, to feel how we are, you know, uh, contributing to their wealth, uh, w- welfare you know we are not uh, we should not be responsible um, or you know contribute in damaging countries uh, killing a human being uh, yeah, and destroying them you know there is other way all the time it's available and it's more um a cheaper way which is you know bringing these building schools building hospitals building roads bridges to other communities that they need but sending you know uh war planes and more bombing and more killing to innocent people around the world because you think because you you they might because they might someone you know you don't like around that area it just uh, i believe you know i see um, from the last uh, 25 years being here in this country i see there is a huge number uh, of people you know they are uh, they are doing uh, fabulous you new job they are trying to change the narrative. They are trying to push the elected people. And we will see the result, you know, in the coming in you know, November. I'm optimistic, and I have to be optimistic because I have family there. I have, I care about the humanity, whether they live in America or they live in anywhere in the world. You know, I want to see a peace, uh, a world with peace. People, they're loving each other, you know. They're living uh, to raise their family and take care of each other. And I'm optimistic that will
0: happen. Yeah, well, it's good to hear a little bit of um, optimism. Um, Janan, as I think you know, I I was born and raised in Israel. I've been um, a peace activist and activist for Palestinian rights for many, many years now. But I find that um, with this genocide happening, I'm learning. A lot of stuff that I actually didn't know before and uh, just a few day I heard from a Palestinian man that the Palestinians always thought that something like that was going to happen that that there was always this notion that uh, a genocide will occur and, um, I wonder if that's your experience too, and um, is that something that seems to have been inevitable by um by Israel to do?
1: I think it's definitely been part of the plan. Um, my family uh, uh, has uh, has uh, property and goes to the West Bank often, and there are numerous uh, Uh, settlements uh, there. And um, I have seen them, I have seen them myself where, you know, the settlers are fully armed, the Palestinians can't even have a if they if they're caught with a stone uh they are imprisoned for years uh whereas the settlers they're fully armed they they come with these you know uh automatic weapons and you find that um, they will routinely come and uh, besides the fact that the um uh, the palestinian population has uh very limited access to things like water, etc. Uh, you will have swimming pools and and uh, um, green grass and things like that because they will have unlimited access to water in the settlements. And so these settlers will come even in big groups, um, and they will have cover from the U.S. Uh, from the excuse me, the Israeli IDF and they will shoot at the water tanks that are on the on top of the homes um of the palestinians where they collect you know they collect rainwater they collect water from the, from the uh they have the tanks there um they will they will shoot at the solar panels that uh you know that 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 they they use to to heat a water um, and uh, they're protected. They are fully protected. They will beat up uh, individuals. Men will be standing in the streets. Sometimes they will just shoot them, shoot at them. Um, young boys, they will shoot them. And God forbid if a young boy happens to accidentally get lost near their area, they disappear. Um, and so, and they these are individuals that um, um, have have a uh, sort of like a biblical belief. That God loves them better than everybody else, and they have all rights to the entire land, and that the Palestinians are not human beings. Um, I, I don't know, you know, I don't think this is this is anything that Moses preached. These are the the racism that they are carrying, and so and so they they are preparing. And if you see what's happening in the settlements, the encroachment, taking over little village by village, taking it and because the intention is take, to take over all of Palestine. And so the Palestinians are not stupid. They see this happening, but they're doing only what they can. They try to protest. They try to, to hope that maybe the United States, which is arming them, that will will develop a conscience and some morality. But um, to, to see the viciousness, I think that to see the viciousness that has taken place, the starvation the intentional targeting of women and children, the killing of people in hospitals, I think that's even beyond what we expected. We thought there there has to be some shred of humanity, but that's not what we're seeing at all.
0: Yeah, and uh, part of it is also uh, stopping the support, the financial support to UNRWA, um Mohammed, as someone who grew up in Gaza and has lived there, explain the role of UNRWA and what that means when it doesn't have money. Uh,
3: yes, this is a, uh, an issue which is UNRWA uh, uh, is is the lifeline for the Palestinian in Gaza and um, as you know that in 1948 and 1967, majority of the people in Gaza, some estimate you know, around between 70 to 80% they are refugees, which is, I lived you know, in Gaza, and my ID card written, you know, I am a refugee, and they have to apply through UNRWA if I need to go to the school, or I need to have a medical uh, a treatment in, in the hospital that's funded by UNRWA. So the majority of the people, you know, in Gaza, I can say 99%, most of them, they are relying in a school and education system, you know, from K-1 all the way to K-12, and in the health you know system to UNRWA. A plus that, you know, the sustain you know, that uh, a monthly provision that to provide from UNRWA to the people you know uh, because the unemployment in gaza it's around 60 70 percent there is a huge number that you know especially after the 17 years of siege uh, and both of them you know from 2007 until now most of the people you know they are relying on, on Orwa. they are relying in their um, services uh, in the medical in the education and in the food supply having cutting you know all of these financial you are Sentencing the people you know to death, you know, in Gaza, there is no other resources. The Palestinians they don't have uh, other resources like nature resources. You know that we are we are talking about a very very small area, 365 square kilometers. As you know, if you planted all of that plant, you know, and with with wheat to you know get you know some flowers, is not going to be enough for the 2.3 million people. So. So Honorwa uh, uh, it's a very crucial that honorwa uh, to be uh, taking care of the people there, you know, uh, take care of the education system, to the health system. And, you know, from my time, you know, being there, you know, without the Honorwa and being in the school from K-1 to K-12, a free charge, even, you know, my textbook and my the scenery, you know, and even, you know, my shoes and my feet, it was supplied by Unorwa. My dad, he is, he had 11 kids. He cannot provide for us everything. So Onorwa they played a crucial role in, uh, up, you know, taking care of the people there with the limited resources that people they have.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Janan, we have um, just about Two minutes, maybe a little less left. Uh, Mohammed voiced some optimism earlier that um, the great mobilization that's happening in this country and really around the world will make a difference and things will change. Do you have hope? Where is it? And specifically, do you think there's a hope for a Palestinian state to uh, be established? And, you know, a minute and a half. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah,
1: um, I also, I am very optimistic. I think that, um, um, you know, this particular, the, these last four months have opened the eyes of many people that were not aware of the situation that the Palestinians have been suffering under. I think that the whole, the entire world is aware of that. We're also entire uh, completely aware of the bias and the injustices and the false, false uh, uh, calls for human rights only for some people, not others. That some of these democracies that that praise themselves um, uh, are are really responsible for a lot of these genocides and these wars. But I'm very optimistic that eventually the voices of the people will um, will prevail because justice. We have to believe in justice, and we have to believe that human beings eventually, eventually um, um, just just causes will will win over. Um, I, I believe that firmly and I believe there will be a Palestinian state. Um, what what breaks my heart is the misery and the debt, uh, needless misery and death and all of the snuffed out lives that we will never see their potential.
0: Yeah. Well, Janan Najib, founder and current executive director of the Milwaukee Muslim Women's Coalition and founder and advisor for the Wisconsin Muslim um uh, sorry, um, the convener of the Wisconsin Coalition for Justice in Palestine, as well as many other things. Thank you so much, Janan. And thank you so much, Muhammad Hamad, uh, who was born in Gaza to a family that was twice displaced, 1948 and 1967, and maybe displaced a third time now after sustaining many losses. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope we talk again sometime in the future. Thank bye. you
1: very much. And can I just mention that on Sunday in Milwaukee at two o'clock, um, uh, at the uh, courthouse in Milwaukee, we will have a large rally and march for justice and
0: Palestine. Yes, and I will see you there. And thanks to Samer, Jade, and Esti Dinor. Sorry to be a little late here. Just stay tuned for the funny boys. Bye bye.